Ruth chapter 1 verses 1 to 7 and our theme is our mistakes and God's mercy our mistakes and God's mercy part of what makes us human is that we love stories we love to tell them and we love to hear them told Despite all our digital technology and the audio video revolution that has come with it, uh, we're still retelling some of the oldest and most familiar and most well-loved stories. Some of the oldest stories are still our favorite stories. Just look at some of the biggest movies that have come out the last few years. They've been remakes of uh, stories that have been told, whether in book form or movie form, many times before. Uh, Aladdin, the Jungle, Bu- the, jun- the Jungle Book, Beauty and the Beast, all old, old stories. But the best stories stand the test of time and are repeated down through the generations. Every, every story essentially has four parts. There's the beginning where everything's fine, everyone's happy. Then there's a problem, something goes wrong. There's the resolution to the problem. And then there's the conclusion when everything is as it should be again, or perhaps even better than it was before. And really, when you boil it down, most of the the most loved stories, movies, books, whatever it may be, that's the same story that they're all telling. Why is it that we go back to this story time and time again? Well, it's because deep down we know that this story is our story. It's the story of God and his creation of a beautiful world, a perfect world, something going wrong, our sin ruining it, and then God's actions in putting things right. And every other good story produces a faint echo of that story within us when we hear it. This is the story of the whole Bible of God rescuing us by sending Jesus Christ to undo the problem of sin and create a perfect kingdom. And no matter where you turn in the Bible, that's the story that's in progress to some degree or other. And what's so wonderful about the book of Ruth is that it captures this big Bible story in miniature form and tells a version of it in just four simple chapters. There is a beginning in the book of Ruth There is a problem, there's a resolution to the problem, and there is a wonderful finale. Alistair Begg, and indeed I'm sure many other preachers have made similar remarks, but Alistair Begg has said that Ruth is arguably one of the loveliest short stories ever written, one of the best ever short stories. He says, across the four chapters of Ruth, we have literary art and theological insight at their very finest. A beautiful story, and wonderful truth all in one little book. There's something for everybody in the book of Ruth. Things happen in this story that we can relate to at least some of it. Bereavement, working hard at a job, going on a journey, falling in love. But those things by themselves are not why this story is so special. It's special because it's a story about ordinary people's lives and ordinary events happening but an extraordinary God working through and in those events from behind the scenes. A story that shows us that our great God is always at work in every aspect of our lives working all things out for our good and his glory. 
And so we'll make a, a beginning in studying this book today. It'll take us the rest of the month of August in the mornings. And first of all, we see today as we begin bad decisions, bad decisions. The first line of the book of Ruth gives us the setting, and this is very important. Notice verse one, in the days when the judges ruled, the days when the judges ruled. So that's the setting of the book of Ruth, the day of the judges. And the days when the judges ruled, if if you know the story of the book of Judges, they were dark days. In fact, it was one of the very worst times spiritually and in many other ways in the whole of Israel's history. If you look at just the last verse of the book of Judges, it should be easy to find just, to, uh, just right before the book of Ruth. Look at Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And those words are repeated four times throughout the book of Judges. That's the spiritual climate, if you like, that the book of Ruth is set in. It's a time when everyone just does whatever they please, with no regard to God and his word. And you can go home today and you could flick through and and pick almost a chapter of Judges at random, and you would get a sense of the mess that God's people created in this era. They were out of control. One particularly vivid example would be Judges 19, if you were to read that. You would get a pretty stark example of the, just the, the, the mess, the, con, the spiritual confusion, the, the lack of submission to God's word. It was just a complete disaster at times in the days of the Judges. And in response to the people's sin, God would firmly punish them, just as he had promised to do. Uh, We read earlier from Deuteronomy 28, the people couldn't claim that God's punishments were coming out of the blue when they came. God had told them, this is how it will be in the promised land. If you obey, you will experience blessing. If you disobey, you will experience curses and punishment. And broadly speaking, there were two ways that God had said that he would punish his people uh, if they sinned against him repeatedly and brazenly. One way would be that their enemies would come in and invade and destroy them. Or the other way would be that God would send economic hardship, drought and famine and so forth. You see, friends, the reason, one of the reasons God did that was because in the Old Testament, he spoke to his people in visual ways. He gave them pictures to point them back to himself, the children by their side, the food in their hands, the land that they lived in, these were the means that God used to to bless his people. And equally, the absence of food or land or children was a sign of his judgment upon them. And all through the book of Judges, this cycle repeats. The people sin, God sends punishment. Eventually, they repent and cry out. God sends a savior, a judge to rescue them. And so when we read the words of Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, that it was the days of the judges and that there was a famine in the land, that's a theological statement. It's telling us that, it's not just saying there just so happened to be a famine in the land. It's telling us that it was one of these times when God was punishing his people 
He was cursing the land because of their sin. And he was urging them to turn back to him in repentance. That was how the famine would end. But one man thinks he has a better way of getting the food for himself and his family. Look at verse 1. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech is a man with a plan, or so he thinks. His plan is, rather than starve in Israel, he's going to take his family off to somewhere else completely, just for a little while, not too long, just to get enough food or until the famine eases in Israel. But we need to appreciate, friends, that Elimelech moving house from Judah to Moab is not like you or I moving house from Dromor to Banbridge or Dublin even, or even to some other foreign country necessarily. Elimelech chooses to leave the promised land, the place that God had called his people to be, the place where he had promised to bless them. And of course, in that time, again, the physical land of Israel had spiritual significance. It was a way of identifying the people of Israel as the people of God, that this was where God has called us to be, and so this is where we should stay. Every Israelite family had a little piece of the promised land in their possession. The book of Joshua spells all of this out. And they were to pass down their little plot of land down through the generations. It wasn't to be sold. If it was sold temporarily, it had to be given back eventually to the original family. And this was a way of saying to their children's children, we belong to God forever. This is God's place. We are God's people. This is the place of God's blessing. Where he says he will bless is where we should be. And so Bethlehem was where God had called Elimelech to be. Which meant that anywhere else he went was the wrong place. And I remember a piece of advice I got when I was weighing up the call to come here to Dremore. Someone said to me, you have to go where God calls you to be. Because he's not going to bless if you go, to the, if you go the, to the other place. And that was something that stayed with me. And God had called Elimelech to be in Bethlehem. To be in the promised land. Anywhere else he chose to be was the wrong place. And of all the places he could have gone to, where does he go? But Moab. And as bad as the land of Israel was during the day of the judges... Moab was even worse. It was a despicable place, a pagan place, full of sexual immorality. Even child sacrifice was committed in the land of Moab. The nation of Moab shouldn't even have existed. If you remember, Moab came into existence because way back in Genesis, Lot's daughters committed incest with their drunken father, and one of them gave birth as a result of that to a little boy and named him Moab. This was a nation that shouldn't even exist. The Moabites, furthermore, had preyed upon the Israelites during their time in the wilderness. They had attacked them. They had tempted them into their own sexual sin. Bad enough that Elimelech should leave the promised land, but to leave it for Moab was ridiculous. It was stupid. It was sinful. Who did he consult before he left Bethlehem for Moab? 
No one. How much time did he spend in prayer before he made this decision? None. Did he think through how his decision would impact his family? Not at all. As we'll see in a moment, he gave no thought whatsoever to what would happen to his wife or to his children if he died and they were still in Moab. And the author, it's easy to miss perhaps in our English translations, but the author actually is stressing to us how inappropriate Elimelech's actions were. If you look at verse 2, he says they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They were from a leading clan in the leading tribe of the whole country, the, the tribe of Judah. And yet what do we read? They went into the country of Moab and remained there. This is like saying today, so-and-so who had been in such and such a church and their father and their father's father had been in that church, they left church altogether, stopped going anywhere, went out into the world and remained there. And Elimelech in 3000 BC has the same attitude as many of us in 2021 AD. He believed the false gospel of self-reliance, of materialism I'm smart enough I'm educated enough I'm wealthy enough I'm healthy enough to make my own decisions to go where I want to go to do what I want to do and who are you to judge our hyper individual uh, society has the same mindset as Elimelech and there's a lot of irony in this passage friends a lot of irony in, in the names that are mentioned in this passage the name Bethlehem for example means house of bread house of bread there's not a crust of bread in Bethlehem the name Elimelech means my God is king and yet the decisions Elimelech makes were a clear statement I have no king I'll do what's right in my own eyes the thinking of the society around him had gotten in to Elimelech's mind and heart and before he even realized that he was acting just like the sinful world around him doing whatever he wanted to do with no regard for God's word he made bad decisions. And secondly, this morning, notice the disastrous consequences of Elimelech's bad decisions. Bad decisions that lead to disastrous consequences. Look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So Elimelech, no sooner has he made this bad decision than he dies in Moab. And it gets worse, verse 4. His sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. So his sons marry pagan women who have no knowledge, no interest, no regard, at least at this point in the story, for the God of Israel. They lived there about 10 years and both Machlon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. One writer says, in the space of half a verse, Naomi's world has come crashing down. Over the, in the space of 10 years, 10 years is nothing. In the space of 10 years, this woman has had to arrange two weddings and three funerals. And she has lost her husband and her two sons. Some of you know the pain of losing a spouse. Some of you know the pain of losing children or siblings. Some of the worst spiritual and emotional pain we can go through. 
But on top of all of that natural grief and mourning that Ruth, or sorry, that Naomi would have experienced in that time and place, there were practical consequences to this as well, dire consequences. An Israelite woman needed a man, a husband or a son or a brother or someone to protect her inheritance and keep her name passing down the generations so that she could lay claim to land in Israel. If you didn't have a name, you didn't have a right to the land, you didn't have a future with God's people, you may as well be dead. It was like you didn't belong with God's people at all. From a practical point of view as well, it was the man who would put food on the table. It was an agricultural society, everybody going out into the field, doing a hard day's work. If women went out into work in the countryside, they were vulnerable to physical attack or financial exploitation. Who's going to look after Israelite Naomi in pagan Moab? Elimelech made bad decisions and now his wife faces the disastrous consequences. One writer says she faces a present without a husband and a future without a hope. Elimelech's moment of self-reliance and prayerlessness, his Moab moment, his Moab moment cost his family dear. Now, no doubt Elimelech would have said that he had good reason for moving from Israel to Moab. He has a wife, he has two children. Like any good parent, he wants to provide for them. He wants to put food on the table for them. But Elimelech forgot that he didn't just need to provide for his family physically, he also needed to provide for his family spiritually. Not just did they need physical blessing, they needed spiritual blessing. Elimelech had a Moab moment he didn't think in these terms. He thought about the immediate. He thought about the practical. He thought about the physical. He didn't think like a man of faith. Ian Duguid, a commentator in Ruth, says this about Elimelech. Very often in those defining moments in life, he says, the factors that weigh most heavily are those that seem to provide us with comfort and security. He goes on, we make the choices that seem best in our eyes without reference to God and without serious thought to the long-term implications. Have you been there? Have you ever had a Moab moment? This can happen, for example, when a young Christian wants to get married and the choices seem somewhat limited. And so they settle for someone who either doesn't profess faith at all or who seems to have a bit of a loose relationship with their profession of faith, shall we say. And out of a desire to be married rather than to stay single, without thinking about what the implications could be for themselves or for any children that might come from that union, a Christian gets married to a non-Christian. Or a Christian takes a job offer in a new city or a new country because it's their dream job, it's what they've been working towards, they've worked hard, they've earned it, but they go without any consideration of their spiritual needs being met in that new town or city or country. And of course, it's possible for Christians to travel as missionaries to such places, but a lot of thought and prayer and preparation goes into that. What sort of schools, what, what, what will the schools be like? Is there a Bible preaching, Bible faithful church in that city? What influences will our children have to fight against in that place? Have you ever had a Moab moment? 
Are you in the middle of a Moab moment? You did what was easy, what was immediate, what was right in your eyes. The consequences could be disastrous. Sometimes the right path is the more difficult path. Our culture of next day delivery and every app that we could ever need for anything tempts us to believe other than this, but sometimes good things take a while to come. And sometimes they come at a cost. And Elimelech ultimately was not willing to humble himself along with his nation and repent of sin. That was all it would have taken for the famine to end. And let me say especially to the men this morning, man, God has called us to lead our families and lead in our churches. And in the months and years to come, this church needs more leaders. We need more elders. We need more deacons. Men, are we praying with and for our wives and our children? Is family worship happening? Do they see you, the leader, repenting when you get something wrong? Praying when, there, when, there's something, when you're in some kind of need? Bringing God into the everyday life of you and your family? The way the author of Ruth tells the story here, Naomi and the kids were tag-alongs to Elimelech's bad decisions. Had he lived longer, he'd have watched his sons grow up to make a mess as well because of his Moab moment. Man, let's pray by God's grace that we will not make the kind of mistakes that Elimelech made. But it's not just men who need to learn these lessons, of course. All of us do. Women, young people, boys and girls, older saints. We need to avoid the temptations of the quick and the easy when we know the demands that God's word makes upon us. We must resist the temptation that our world impresses upon us to do what is right in our own eyes. And of course, ultimately, that's what Adam and Eve did at the very beginning. Remember what it says in Genesis, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. She did what was right in her own eyes. She saw something she wanted. She went for it and Adam with her. And ultimately, friends, that bad decision has had disastrous consequences of death. The wages of sin is death. Sin is our bad decision. And sin will lead us to hell unless we are willing to do what Elimelech did not do. To humble ourselves and repent. So we've thought about bad decisions. We've thought about disastrous consequences. But thirdly and finally this morning, let's think about our gracious God. Our gracious God. Promised you this wonderful little short story. So far it's been a bit grim. Uh, It's a bit dark. Naomi is left in a pagan land. No husband, no children, no hope. She's in desperate need. But someone is still watching over Naomi. Look at verse 6, boys and girls. This is the verse on your sheet this week. It's the verse you might want to try and memorize. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Why did she return? What prompted her to return? Verse 6. For she had heard in the fields of Moab the Lord had visited his people and given them food. There's a verse bursting, friends, with grace. She just so happened to hear, did she? She just so happened to hear in a foreign country what was going on back in Israel. No Facebook to keep up to date with what's going on in Israel in those days. 
just so happens that Naomi is in the right place at the right time in Moab to hear someone say, did you hear what's happened in Bethlehem? Did you hear what God of Israel has done for his people? Friends, the very fact that Naomi heard this news is an act of the loving kindness, the grace of God upon her. Somehow God gets the message to her, there is bread again in Bethlehem, it's time to go home. Ian Duguid says there is a mysterious X factor in the book of Ruth, a variable that has the power to change everything. It is the grace of God. And God's grace finds Naomi, even in Moab, even in such dreadful need, God makes sure that the good news reaches her. And as decisively and as quickly as Elimelech left Bethlehem for Moab, that's as quick as Naomi now gets up and leaves Moab for Bethlehem. And the text emphasizes that in verse 6. She heard, she prepared, she returned home. She's going home without a husband, without sons, without a penny to her name. But at least she's going. See, friends, God's grace and mercy can always turn the situation around. Psalm 103, verse 9. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. The psalm goes on to say that our God is like a compassionate father on the needy. Naomi had no husband, she had no sons, but she had a good father in heaven watching over her. And when we, like Naomi, or like the prodigal in the far country, when we have come to an end of ourselves, when we realize that our Moab moment has led to disaster, there is only one decision to make, friends. Repent. Or as the author of the book of Ruth puts it here, return. And really those two words come from the same in the Hebrew in the original. Repent, return, it's got the same meaning. That's what Naomi does in verse 6. It's the key word of the chapter. It appears 12 times in Ruth chapter 1, that word return. She turns around. She realizes what she needs to do. She realizes that she needs to go to the place of blessing and escape the place of death. And so Elimelech's Moab moment is put right. First of all, because of what God has done. And then because Naomi repents. Well, maybe you're in a Moab moment today. Maybe you've been stubbornly, hard-heartedly refusing to turn around. But God is mercifully speaking to you today like he spoke to Naomi. He is showing you grace the simple fact that you're hearing this sermon today is evidence of that, whether you're here in the building or listening online. The choice today for you is death or blessing. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Maybe some of us are believers who are coming through a Moab moment. It wasn't entirely Naomi's fault that she was in this mess, of course. It was the poor leadership of her husband and she was paying for his mistakes and maybe today you feel like you're paying for the mistakes of others maybe you're coming through a time of of hardship of need of confusion 
But you need God's help and you need God's guidance and you need God's reassurance for this time. And so he says to you today, return. Maybe you've been distant from him. Maybe you haven't been committing your plans into his hands. Maybe you've tried to make it on your own and you've made a mess. Dear friend, return. Your father's arms, like the arms of the prodigal son's father, are wide open. While we were still a long way off, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And whatever your needs are today, they can all be supplied in Christ Jesus. What was the good news that Naomi got in Moab? The news that she heard was, there is bread in Bethlehem. And a thousand years after Naomi heard about bread in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. And among the many wonderful things that Jesus did and said, he once declared, I am the bread of life. I am the one who can satisfy your soul. And so even if you've wandered a long way into a far country today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Instead, return, repent. Amen.